With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Slate Political Gabfest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 p.m. Eastern, only on MSNBC. And by Bonobos. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order at bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. Discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 16th, 2015, the sick and tired of your damn emails edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, really alone, not even a producer in the room with me, but I'm here in Washington. You're going rogue. I'm going rogue, but I can't go too far rogue because Emily Bazelon in New Haven will keep an eye on me. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello. Hello. And then John Dickerson is in his favorite state, I think. What state is that? People should guess. Yeah, all right, well, we're going to pause for the audience to We know to guess. where yeah, you are. People are yes. playing at home. Oh, it's Iowa. That's John Dickerson to Face the Nation. Why are you in Iowa, John? Are you doing a Face the Nation from Iowa this week? Uh, we are not doing the show from Iowa this week, although we will be uh, in future weeks. I'm out here um, having some meetings in connection with the upcoming Democratic debate in November. Yeah, can't wait. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. So on this week's GabFest, we will talk about the first Democratic debate, the one that John Dickerson did not moderate. But what did we learn from that? Did Hillary Clinton have a really good night or not? Then does Paul Ryan want to be Speaker of the House? If he does, what's going to happen? What won't happen? And then it was constant jury finds a gun seller liable in an illegal gun sale. Is that a big deal or just nothing very much? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, why do politicians dress that way? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Hey, you know what? I did a not very good job last week. We have an amazing show coming up on November 16th in New York City at Town Hall, great theater on Broadway in Manhattan. We're doing a big super fest with our friends at the Culture Fest to hang up and listen and some really cool special guests who we'll be announcing soon. And it's going to be an amazing show. And we're going to have a have some cool political discussions. And it's going to be it's going to be really fun. So I strongly urge you to buy tickets and come see us at Town Hall. Slate.com slash NYC. Superfest NYC. Come to it. You know what I, I just discovered today, lady and gent, is that our 10th anniversary is in December. 
Oh no way! I was wondering when it was. I thought, yeah, I, I, I don't. I thought it was even earlier than that. So I'm glad to hear we haven't missed it. Yeah, we got to <laughs> think of something to do, listeners. If well, you, you know, have what some... we should do. We should have a mattress sale. We should have what? a mattress sale. From <laughs> one what of they our... do on big anniversaries of huge, momentous it's not, it's turns not in George American Washington's history. Washington's birthday. Oh, good. Yeah, that. Washington's birthday, Columbus Day. We're going to do something better than that. Listeners, if you have an idea of what we can do, we may not get around to doing it until January or something. Let's do something. (laughs) We may not get around until our 20th anniversary, but we like to start early. We've got to do something for our 10th anniversary. What is the 10th anniversary? Yeah, I like the idea of listener ideas for this. silver, wood, brass? Bauxite, I think. Bauxite? Other, uh, yeah, bauxite would be good. We can open a bauxite mine. Anyway, the Democratic debate on Tuesday in Nevada, the casino in Nevada, hotel casino in Nevada, uh, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Martin O'Malley, Lincoln Chafee, Jim Webb, and the ghost of the man that Jim Webb killed. It was a really interesting debate. Bernie Sanders got most of the cheers, or the, I would say the, the loudest cheers. But Hillary Clinton, by media consensus, won the night. John, were you there? You don't have to answer that. But was her debate performance really that good? I was there at the Wynn Casino. Well, I think it's the Wynn Casino Hotel and Resort and every other damn thing. It's a, quite a pretty uh, location. Anyway, uh, I was there at the debate. And also one other aside, can I just say, so you walk to the debate through all the people who are gambling, and, and it, was, it was great because it was like an, it was a pure American experience, which is to say there were all these people fascinated with the political goings-on embedded in a place that was where the majority of people couldn't have given a damn about the politics, and we're just going, you know, gleefully into debt. So it was just sort of like the way our American experience is now. Most of the country doesn't care about our political obsessions. Anyway, uh, why did she do well? Um, I think she did well on two fronts. One, on offense, she basically decided to force play. She um, didn't want to just kind of hang back. She's ahead by 20-plus points in the national polls, but having difficulties in Iowa and New Hampshire, but doing well in pretty much all the other states she'll find. But she could have played it safe, just been competent. But she decided to take on Bernie Sanders on guns. She decided to stick up for a form of capitalism that was a little bit more um, traditional than his. She pressed the issue against Bernie Sanders in a number of different ways, which is extraordinary given how risk-averse she is. You could imagine that going terribly wrong. And the fact that she even tried the gambit at all is surprising given how cautious her campaign has been so far. And she gave um, a number of different answers that were sharp, were knowing. And there was one answer she gave at the end of the debate on family leave that was amazing. It would showed she understood the difference between the laws in California and the laws in the country. She defended uh, Democrats against Republicans. She beat up on Carly Fiorina. She beat up on the Republicans in a way that received cheers. She told a little bit of her personal bio about when she was pregnant and working in a law firm. And she uh, also defended Planned Parenthood. I mean, she touched like 18 different bases in her answer. So on offense, she was good. And then the defense she came in with a big, the big negative storyline against her is that she's not honest and trustworthy. And the way that goes wrong in a debate is if you do something in the course of the debate that reaffirms that existing storyline. 60% of the country, according to our last poll, doesn't find her honest and trustworthy. Where could that have gone terribly wrong? On her recent change of position on trade and or in her answer about emails. But when she gave her traditional answer on emails, Bernie Sanders jumped in and basically said, this is a silly line of questioning. Stop bothering her about her damn emails. 
which turned any possible place that she could have had a problem, um, it just completely cordoned it off. And uh, so on both offense and defense, she had a strong night. So we'll come back to the emails in a minute. I have other questions about that. But Emily, watching Hillary Clinton, it was extraordinary to me how how paragraph fluent she was, how every single answer had a kind of clarity and crispness, not in an inhuman way, in a quite clear-headed, decent, smart, reasonable person way. I was reminded a little bit of the one meeting I ever had with Bill Gates and just that Bill Gates is not Bill Gates is not like Albert Einstein, where he says things you can't understand how brilliant he is. He's just operating at a very high analytic uh, RPM and just working very clearly and just doesn't have a misplaced thought. And I had some of the same sense with Hillary Clinton. Were you did you come away as impressed with her performance as I was and a lot of other people seem to have been? I did. And I was trying to think why. So she seemed very much in command. She was assured she had what seemed like the right facts at her fingertips. And then I was thinking about how last week we wanted her to be authentic and just to be speaking from the heart in some way that didn't seem scripted and calculated. That was you. And you I, kept saying that. I didn't me, say that. I wanted that. And I actually thought that I got it, kind of, even though there were moments that I really liked that seemed, in retrospect, rehearsed. I was with her in the moment, and... I felt like she was really talking with confidence. And she said some things that weren't boring. I actually thought her defense of capitalism was the right way to or a right way to come back at Bernie Sanders on that front. And then I found myself, I rarely feel have felt over the years a particular emotional connection with Hillary Clinton. I mean, I know she is the first woman who has a real chance to be president, but there are so many things about her that can be I repellent is strong, but I just feel sort of deflected by her. In the moment when she was defending Planned Parenthood, I felt this rush of emotion. And I realized it's because I'm starting to think of Planned Parenthood and Hillary Clinton as these two female kind of feminist bastions of strength that are being damaged and pilloried to a large extent unfairly. And so the meeting of those for me was powerful. And I wonder if there were other you know, women across the country who had that same flash of thinking like, yes, she is defending something that is being unfairly attacked. She knows what that's like. And I'm with her on this. John, why do you think, given that by the sort of response in the room, by the response on Twitter, by the response on Google, Bernie Sanders had a stronger night than Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders was the one who excited the most interest out in the world. Yeah. Why is it that people are not saying what a remarkable performance by Bernie Sanders? What a victory. Why is the narrative so much about Hillary's commanding show? I think for a couple of different reasons. I think it's also possible for Bernie Sanders to have a good night and for Hillary Clinton to have a good night. And he did have a good night in the lane that he is in, which is he spoke forcefully and with authenticity and passion and all the things that have made him successful about his kind of main issue, the tilting of the or the tilted economic landscape and the fact that it remains tilted and won't get fixed until the millionaires and billionaires who influence policy and influence the economy uh, lose some of their power. He was pretty much on message in everything he said. There were moments where he did seem a little ruffled and rumpled, but he gets a lot of leeway because that's sort of part of his 
personality. I don't. I mean, you know, there was one period where Anderson Cooper asked him about something Jim Webb had said, and you you got the feeling for a moment that Sanders hadn't paid attention to anything Webb was saying. So anyway, I think he was. And so in that he sense, spoke, he is just like the American people. Yeah, I think you, so. So it's possible, and I think it's true that people who like Bernie Sanders, who like the thrust of that message were thrilled by it and thought it wasn't, uh, you know, well done. But I think it then also can be parallel true that Hillary Clinton, who has been on a slide, who has been ahead of Bernie Sanders by a vast margin, but has never felt like it or looked like it or, or embodied the commanding behavior of a frontrunner. There haven't been a lot of moments where people have said, oh, right, that's why people think she's good. I mean, I can't think of a single other moment since her candidacy was declared right. in... April, yeah. where somebody might say, oh, there's a person, there's a set of skills being displayed that explain why she might have the job. And so given the slide that she's been on, she sort of met her moment. And so therefore, given all of her other advantages, you know, she did better or she, she kind of solidified what has been the kind of status quo of the race, which is that she has lots of, lots more advantages and is ahead of Bernie Sanders. And for him to have really one, he would have, she would have had to have a bad night and him have a good night, but that isn't what happened. Did uh, the Joe Biden presidential campaign end on Tuesday night, Emily? Yeah, I mean, I felt like there was no more, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's silly to think this one event cancels out whether Joe Biden should come in. But beforehand, I've been thinking like, okay, well, let's have a real race here. Let's make Hillary feel like she really has to prove that she is the right candidate. And so what if he's like an old white guy? Maybe he should get in there anyway and stir things up. And then I just completely lost my appetite for it. Do you guys, uh, I don't know which one of you, do you think that the the idea that this is a real race is now over. It's clear that Sanders will be a very good outsider uh, sort of voice from the left. He'll get his 27 percent. But that the the idea that this could be a race is now done or are we too premature? It's, you know, it's still the beginning of the first act. That was well, we have to debate. see how she does in that Benghazi hearing. I mean, that could still blow up in her face. What about you, John? Do you think no, that- I think that's I think that's right. I think um, just on the Biden front, he I, if you look at the polling, so let's look at the CBS polling. I don't know why I would say that, but his numbers, he was at 11 in a three-way poll, or I guess O'Malley was a part of the poll too, but doesn't really register. Um, he was at 11. Now it's October. He's at 16. He's had a lot of exposure over the last two months, a lot of people talking about him as a possible entrant into the race. You're never better than when you are the white knight candidate who's not campaigning, but who everybody wants to campaign. If that were true, you'd expect him to be at more than 16. If there were a huge groundswell and appetite for Joe Biden, you would expect it to show up in the polls somewhere. It isn't. The person for whom there is a groundswell and there is passion is Bernie Sanders. So I don't see this massive crowd waiting to embrace Joe Biden. And if there ever were to be such a crowd, it would be inspired by a really bad performance from Hillary Clinton. Um, and the idea that the Democratic Party would be in trouble because Bernie Sanders is not electable. Anyway, so I think this contributes to what's just been generally true, which is there's not a huge appetite for a Biden campaign, and there's no rationale for it, absent Hillary Clinton's 
disastrous performance. So I think that's where that is. And I can't remember the uh, actual question you asked me. That's that was fine, John. Don't no need to remember. I don't want to tax you. <laughs> the, the I want to go to the emails for a second. So Bernie Sanders, it was a great theatrical moment. Hillary Clinton made the most of it. He said he was sick and tired of hearing people complaining about her damn emails. I paraphrase there. I don't see why that was such a big deal. He's a Democrat. Of course, he's sick and tired of it. That's not what the issue is. The issue is not that Democrats don't want to hear about her damn emails. It's that for Republicans, this has become totemic and important. I didn't think that 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 didn't seem to me to to suddenly uh, end the email issue in any meaningful way. May end it as sort of something that the Democrats are going to campaign on, but they weren't. It was never part of the narrative anyway. It was always about well, what Republicans Well, but she becomes so do. defensive about it, right? And I felt like a lot of Democrats were bashing her for this. And it was part of feeling like, right, she's not trustworthy. We have all these doubts. Why the hell did she set up the stupid server? That's all the things we hate about the Clintons. And it was like Bernie Sanders suddenly reduced the whole thing down to size by just pointing out that, like, it's enough already. And there isn't anything else to be learned here. I think it was within the drama of the moment. You know, again, it it closed off additional inquiries on that front for the course of the debate. And those inquiries, whether people were sick of the issue or not, would not have been seconds spent or minutes spent in the debate that would have been good for Hillary Clinton because her answer is bad. Um, It shows none of the things that people have praised her for in the debate performance, including the fact that at times she looked like she was actually having fun. And when she came back from the bathroom during one of the breaks, which I wonder if anybody watching got it, what had happened. um, Oh, yeah. There was all kinds of tweeting about people being like, oh, my God, are they really talking about peeing? Yeah. And she was like, well, it does take me longer. I totally you talk about authenticity. And humanness. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, somebody who is able to offer that kind of little quip is feeling pretty light on their feet. And so there were a lot of instances in which she behaved, you know, which was looked to be actually in command of the moment enough that she could actually enjoy it. Well, it um, fe- but to me, it, so, felt, it felt like a soccer friendly. It didn't even feel like a real match. The debate, I enjoyed it. It was fun. Yeah. But it didn't feel like there was high stakes for anybody involved. There were these three people who were essentially irrelevant. And then Sanders, who was not really debating her, he was giving his set speeches in, in, well, in serial fashion. And why wouldn't she enjoy it? What's so not to enjoy? But it could have been a, a like playing, rule. You know, it playing Belgium or playing Costa Rica or something. Yeah, but it didn't have to be that. He could have gone after her much more directly and she could have seemed shaky. Right. He didn't. And, but no, also, I'm David, it, I think that's not right. I mean, first of all, a couple of things. They did get into some back and forths on gun control although and on regulation of the banks. Although what I wonder is what people took away from those exchanges. In other words... What did they really learn about what those two of them would do prospectively about those two issues and why that matters to their lives? But leaving that aside for a moment, when you think about what we came into this debate, you could imagine it going much worse for her. Think of all the times she has given answers about her private email system and server and how many of those times turned out where people said, boy, now we really know why she should be president. Zero. And she could have given tepid, boring, meandering answers that would have given nobody any reason to think she was competent or that she was just kind of flat and not thrilling. There are people, you know, people were calling up the campaign after the debate and wanting to be a part of it. That has not been the kind of energy that has surrounded the Clinton campaign so far. I mean, you know, in pockets, yes, of course, but not the way, you know, the, the, the feeling Emily described of feeling a solidarity with her based on comments she's made in the public square, 
I can't think of another moment like that since she announced. And so creating that kind of a moment is not just, that's not nothing. No, no, I, I, I wasn't, by describing it as a soccer friendly, I wasn't saying that it wasn't good for her. I just was saying that it wasn't, it wasn't the test that, that debating Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz is going to be. Let me put it that way. But that's not where we are in the contest. I know, but it is for the Republicans. I mean, the Republicans are, are in a kind of gladiatorial pit where half of them are getting their, you know, hands chopped off and, you know, alligators are biting them. And each of them is, is attempting to, you know, to, to run the other guy through with a, a spear. Well, that's partly because there's no heir apparent and also because they do have maybe more policy differences or at least like on immigration they do. And it, they have some means to an ends differences, right, about strategy and how you get there. But David, the question to you then, which I, I think you were maybe trying to get at, is whether Bernie Sanders is right in a larger context out of the Democratic race. In other words, is it enough of the damn emails, or is there something really at the heart of those and, that, and the questions of her private server that are worth talking about? Well, I, th- I, I think that the Democrats themselves now have effectively, that Bernie Sanders has effectively laid to rest the doubts about, if you're a Democrat, we're, there's now an agreement, we're not going to attack her character, or we're not going to pull her down around this. We'll have some policy differences, we'll disagree about bank regulation and, and marijuana and a few other things, Syria, but that the fundamental assault on her about her weakest point, which is this the emails, which represent some sense of entitlement and some sense that she's better than everyone or above everything and detached, that, that they're not going to, the Democrats are not going to do that. The Democrats have now ceded it. So now it will just be Republicans. Republicans are having a real fight among themselves. And each of those candidates is going to get just absolutely brutalized during the course of that primary. She is not going to be brutalized in the course of this primary. That is what the debate told us. Right. The, I think that's right. Now, what's interesting is that I mean, Martin O'Malley is running for, it was like that guy is up there running for president, but he was, he wasn't running for president. He was just running like, can I be on your ticket? That was Oh, he, he was had doing. a few jabs at her that were, you know, about basically Character. suggesting she was running on her name. It wasn't total patty cake from him. Um, He's no Lincoln can Chafee. someone retire Lincoln Chafee before the next one? I have to say, I would rather have Larry Lessig up there actually making his campaign finance points oh, for than sure. Lincoln Chafee. And Jim Webb, what a weirdo. Don't say that. It was like kind of ghoulish when he talked about that guy he killed. <laughs> it was amazing. I want all right. Two two final things. One. So the overwhelming, my overwhelming experience with the debate because I tuned in to it kind of late and then went back and watched it. But I just tuned in. Was God like that's a bunch of old white people. Martin O'Malley, who's the youngest person up there, is older than Obama, and they just look. I mean, it's it's not it's not a great look for the party how old those people are. Well, and it would be better if there were some obvious young people breathing down their necks, and yet there are not. I think, just building on what you're saying, David, can you imagine how often it would be remarked upon how many campaign ads would be made about it if it were the reverse? If the Democratic field had two Cuban-Americans, a woman, an African-American, and the diversity that you have on the Republican side, Democrats would talk about it all day long. I mean, it would be constant. And they would talk about how the Democrats were just the party of like old, old white people. It would, it would, you know, that's just another way to think about it. In, in, yeah. Uh, and yeah, when you're listening to what they're actually saying, I mean, there was a great line from Hillary where she talked about how we need a new new deal for communities of color. And she's right. Like, <laughs> that, you know, 
communities, people of color didn't really get the New Deal when it happened. Women arguably got it in like the 1980s. I mean, in terms of the actual substance and awareness of those concerns, when you think about the fact that she and Sanders have been forced, but have been paying attention to Black Lives Matter, you know, that's more in line with the traditional division between Republicans and Democrats. Last question to you, John, and you may not want to tip your hand here, but look, we have you imprisoned on the show. So you have the job of moderating this next debate. You're going to have those five people on a stage, maybe four, maybe six, in a few weeks. Is there anything that you learned watching them that is going to inform how you want to question them? Is there any one, is there anything you're willing to give us? Are you yeah. not willing to, to say anything um, right now? N- no. <laughs> um, only because, I mean, wait, first of all, wait, to your actual question, is there anything I learned? Yeah. I mean, I think Anderson Cooper did a r- really good job. I think all of his... Um, the people who worked who work with him at CNN, because it's not, you know, it's an incredibly collaborative process. Did a really good job in terms of thinking through the questions and preparing him. One can find quibbles, but having done a version of that, I know how incredibly hard it is. And and adding to the fact that you have the the person on stage who killed a guy uh, being angry with you that he's not getting his equal time. All of that is incredibly hard, and so. He not only did a good job, but did a good job relative to how difficult it is. There are definitely things I learned and, you know, avenues I think are are interesting and open and so forth. But um, but if you'll – I've written them all down. And so when after I'm done, I'll reveal them and try and see if I got anywhere close to doing what I hope to do. I have a little suggestion. Can you not have the Hispanic guys show up and ask one question about immigration and the black guys show up and ask one question? black person question like yeah. that just was so tacky you're not going to give us anything come on just give us a like, tiny yeah, thing that would uh, it, it, tiny there's thing. no there's no danger of that um well i think i guess the one thing i would point out or note is that and this is not a criticism it's just the, ter- the territory's been covered a little bit is there was a lot of look at at you know votes they've taken in the past things they've done in the past which are important in understanding a candidate and measuring the things they say now relative to their past, I think there's an opportunity to focus on what they would actually do in office a little bit more. So think about the future a little bit more than All right. than the past. All right. um, and that's, again, that's not a criticism. If, if they hadn't taken care of the past, you would still want to protect, perhaps go there. But, um, but I'll tell you, what it was was incredibly humbling. When you think about the number of possible topics and issues how to handle them, how to get them off the talking points, which are not just not newsworthy, really. Some of them are newsworthy, but, um, but they, don't, you know, they don't help people understand either the candidates or the world around them. The debates are a chance to understand the issues. And, like, why does Glass-Steagall matter? I'm, I'm not sure people, I mean, smart people know, but does everybody know? I mean, they, may, they now know, if they listen to Anderson Cooper, what Glass-Steagall is, but does that... One should have it defined for you. Do, do people understand why that's an issue of debate? And so there's an opportunity to, or you want to kind of make sure everybody comes along with you. And that's a really hard thing to do to keep all those things, to tend to all of those things at the same time. I'm sure you will tend. Let's hear from our first sponsor this week, Stamps.com. Mailing and shipping are a routine part of running your business. They keep your operations going. But if you're making constant trips to the post office, that is a routine you need to change. There's a much more convenient way, which is Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all of the services of the post office right to your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail. 
and then hand it to the mail carrier. You'll never waste valuable time going to the post office again so you can focus on what really matters growing your business. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code GABFEST for a special offer, a four-week trial, and a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. Paul Ryan, the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, former vice presidential running mate of Mitt Romney, is the only serious candidate for Speaker of the House at the moment. It is not, however, clear that he is a candidate. He's being begged by many in the Republican House to get into the race. He doesn't really appear to want it very much. There are many reasons why he might be reluctant. He has young kids. It is a terrible job where you get nothing but grief. That might be a reason why he might not want to do it. And it would probably damage his own presidential ambitions should he have them. It's been pointed out that James K. Polk, a great president, was the last Speaker of the House to become president. James K. Polk was compromise of 1848, right? So that's a long time ago. Um, why, Emily, does he not really want this job? Or does he appear to not I mean, want this job? I mean, you just gave five good answers. Why would anyone in their right mind want this job right now, especially if they had aspirations? It's such a headache. And it seems like by the time we're taping, there are prominent Republicans on talk radio and elsewhere who are coming out against him anyway. So the notion that he was going to waltz in and have everyone express a lot of gratitude and let he'll play some kind of white knight role, like forget it. He won't because I think don't think that's actually possible right now. I will confess that I am so rooting against him taking this job because I am really fascinated by the idea of the House Republicans having an actual breakdown and choosing a leader. That's much more fun for me than the idea of Paul Ryan just doing it. But I really don't think it's in his interest to do it. They're just going to eat him alive. Is there any reason to think, John, that if he gets in there, he can come in with enough constraints on his on his uh, conference that he will be able to be a speaker, an effective speaker who is able to make deals and get stuff done? I don't think so for two reasons. One, the dynamic that ousted Boehner or that caused Boehner to oust himself and that caused McCarthy to take himself out of the running still exists, which is to say, just to recap for everybody, you have about 40 members of the Freedom Caucus, sometimes called Hell No Caucus, who believe that the leaders of the party have have capitulated on conservative promises. And there, more importantly, their grassroots voters believe that. And so they get rewarded at home for pushing those leaders. That all still exists. So all that mess will still be, will still require somebody to untangle it. The secondary problem is that Paul Ryan, for other people, the speaker job is a step up. For him, it's a step down. He has the job he wants. He is not like John Boehner, a guy who grew up in a bar and who enjoyed the camaraderie and human connection that growing up in a bar uh, encourages in you. I mean, John Boehner listened to these guys, even though they were, even when they were trying to oust him. Part of his job and part of what he liked about the job was the tending and maintenance of those 247 members. Paul Ryan does not love that. It does, it's not that he's a, a hermit or a recluse, but what he loves is trying to figure out and make policy. And Ned disagree with his views, perhaps, but he does enjoy that process. That is not the process that he will be engaged in if he is the speaker. And 
they may try to come up with some arrangement, and, and people have been trying to offer him these arrangements to get him to take the job. In other words, you won't have to go out and do all the fundraising. You'll be allowed to work on policy. You know, they can say that. But the reason you go out and do the fundraising is that when you need to twist arms, you say, look, I need your vote on this. And if you vote for me, I'll go do two fundraisers in your district. Because you can't use earmarks and pork barrel spending the way you used to be able to, your weaponry or your levers as a speaker are greatly diminished. And so the fundraising part is one of the things you use to get the stuff done you need to get done as speaker. So to not do any of the fundraising part limits your your power in the job. So I don't think it's a... Uh, and, and then, by the way, he's been on the wrong side. I mean, he's ideologically closer to Boehner. I don't mean ideologically, actually. I mean tactically closer to Boehner than he is the the Hell No Caucus. He's been on the wrong side of them on everything from the Ryan Murray appropriations fix or, or budget fix, the debt limit, closing down the government. I mean, he's been, like, he's had lots of fights with them. So I, I, don't, I don't quite get how this works. So there was a pretty astonishing piece by David Brooks making the case that the conservatives, House Republicans are not conservative at all. They've become radicals. The radicals always want change. They are never satisfied. They believe only in the grand gestures. They are idealists and they live in a state of permanent agitation. And that as a result, because these people don't really believe in government, you know, they're hell bent on on destroying sort of the conservative nature of Washington, which is that things move kind of slowly, but they move because people make sort of small compromises and 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 the you know the least bad option ahead of them. Is there anything happening with this race and with Ryan's reluctance that that makes it possible? Is there anything that can change this dynamic? It's really strange that we become captive to this terrible dynamic. Is there anything that is going to change it that you guys see? Yeah, redistricting in a way that took away the safe districts for all these people where their real challenge is a primary from the right. Like their incentives line up to do exactly what they're doing. So until you change that... Given the diminishing of levers John was just laying out, how else would it change? It's, it, I just don't see that it changes. John, do you think... Um, redistricting may not help with that if everybody is... I mean, unless you drew the districts in ways that probably you would tell me would be... You'd have to draw really unnatural districts. Right. People have moved right. themselves. And, and plus, like, the people who draw the districts are the ones who like the safe districts. So it's not going to happen. But it, I just feel like it's so important to point out that structurally the House is behaving exactly how the House would be expected to behave. But, it's not like they're being – they may be radical. They may be blowing everything up. But they're behaving rationally. Right. Right. But I don't think – I actually don't think that's a redistricting question. Right. Really. I think it's, it's a, a big that, short question. That we've sorted ourselves and because of other ideological factors, the rise of national media, notably national conservative media, the national fundraising, the ways the Internet conversation works. It is just we've sorted our parties. Our parties have become ideologically rigid. In a way they no, didn't now you're be. taking I mean, it's true that redistricting doesn't explain all of it. And it's also true that given residential patterns, redistricting isn't the only reason why there are all these safe districts. But it does matter. I mean, you could have a different way of scrambling voters in some places that would change this on the margins, especially in purple states. It matters a bit. But the Senate, I mean, the Senate doesn't behave in as, quite as crazy a way because it's less divided and because those guys are in there for six years, not two. But Senate Republicans are certainly afraid of being primaried on the right. Like they're designing legislation so they don't have to take hard votes because they don't want to. Yeah, but they're they're also the place like if they were running the show, we would have had immigration reform. I mean, they're they're not as extreme. They're they're just not. 
I mean, I also think the Senate having giving, you know, the constitutional requirement that the Senate gives equal power to senators from teeny tiny states. Oh, boy. Five yeah. people. That's a problem. Yeah, and that's no, part of what we're talking about. But you're, you're arguing it round and flat. I mean, like, then you're, well, you're, was, you like yes, that. I the House is the Democratic the institution. I couldn't help taking a swipe at the Senate. But I, but what? But in terms of the House, because I, I, whatever, these are two different constitutional problems. If, if Ryan doesn't take this job, John, do you have any <laughs> any guesses about what happens next? I don't have any guesses. And that's why I probably in the end come back to him maybe taking it and that if you were to t- if, it, if you were going to take it even though it is a huge manure sandwich piping hot you would play out what he is playing which is exact as many concessions as possible another of his demands is that he's not going to go to the floor of the house for the ultimate vote on the speakership and have it be a close to 18 He's going to, if, if, if he's going to do this, the hell no caucus, some sufficient number of them are going to have to say, okay, we're behind you and give him a big vote. So, you know, uh, give him the 200, you know, 240 out of the 247 or 235 or some pretty good margin. I don't know if that'll, I don't know if that's possible, but if he were going to do it, the smartest thing to do would be to kind of let, let this continue you know, I don't know what role David Brooks plays in the conservative movement. I mean, there's definitely, you know, in the hardcore grassroots conservative movement, he's considered, you know, a rhino and, and all the rest. But that article and other people saying a version of it all sort of helps Ryan. I mean, the, the strongest thing Ryan has going for him or anyone who comes from his point of view is that the, that this is an embarrassment for a governing party, that you can't constantly be creating crisis moments either with the president or with yourself. You would have an intervention if this were a personal behavior. It would be like the warning signs for somebody who's engaged in risky and bad behavior. You know, do they, do they constantly get at war with themselves? Are they constantly shutting down the government? It, the more that becomes kind of a narrative, the more he can use that potentially as leverage against these conservatives. But by the way, these conservatives believe that the Republicans leading the party have sold them out repeatedly. And so they're not really in a mood, and there's a lot of that in the country. It's what's supporting Ben Carson and Donald Trump. So there's, there's a mood about the land in the conservative movement that is, um, you know, feels absolutely really strongly that, that to just go along in the same tepid way is, uh, is a disaster. And so, yeah, this might be ugly for a little while, but we've got to break through it because otherwise we're, you know, we're all doomed. This is just, this is how fascist parties rise. This is terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying to think that this wing of the Republican Party, a party which has a long and honorable history, could define this party and take, essentially destroy the legislative body's ability to function. And when you destroy you legislative bodies- stockpiling canned goods and water in your basement, David? It's pretty, pretty terrifying. <laughs> it's pretty terrifying in a way that I'm, I, I'm not optimistic. I just don't see how this works. If, the, if you have a party that will not- participate in the act of governing that will not behave politically all bets are off about how country works i mean this is how you end up with dictatorship it's how you end up with you know fascist populism you it has you ends up with end up with military takeovers i mean it's it it goes David, awry if, you were really ben, quickly. if you were ben carson and you were saying that you would you would be uh, ridiculed by members of the mainstream media the rules I think are different I think for that, David Plotz. I think it's different. I actually think it's different. What I'm talking about is is different. But, you know, I hope to be wrong. I severely hope to be wrong.
because I would, of course, think that my intellectual case for this is much stronger than Ben Carson's intellectual case that Obama is like Hitler. But I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> uh, all right, let's move I on. I find reassuring the fact that I really just feel like the number of Americans who truly are in this fringe camp is like between 15 and 20 percent. I know, but their ability, always been with their us. ability to stifle, to put a wrench into the gears of government to stop government from functioning and thus making like making all the sorts of compromises and greasiness and and all the things that allow the federal government to work and to accomplish things to end and then once those things end once you're unable to govern once you're unable to fix the healthcare system once you're unable to fund infrastructure once you're unable to you know provide any care for the poor because the government won't do it the government is unable to function everything starts to decay and tatter and then crazy stuff happens. This is how governments collapse. It is how nations, it's how nations fall apart is when things like this happen, when the government loses its ability to do the things that government fundamentally has to do. It's terrifying. So even if it's 10%, 10% can wreck it. That's my view. The Gabfest is brought to you. The, yeah, yeah, the, the Gabfest is brought to you brought by to you MSNBC's by Rachel Maddow show. <laughs> when every you're curled night. up in the fetal position under your desk, every take a little night. bit of nozo, Paul. <laughs> every weeknight. I bet, actually, Rachel Maddow's watchers agree with a lot of what I just said. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, that's a lot of searching. It takes a lot of work. But even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. We are two weeks or so since the Roseburg shootings. There's no significant change in America's gun policies. Nothing looming. But there's a really interesting case in Wisconsin where there was a jury verdict issued against a gun store, Badger Guns, for selling illegally selling guns, a straw man gun sale, uh, the guns that were later used to wound two cops who then sued the gun store for its blatant skirting of the law. Emily, is this case a big deal? Explain the case. Is it a big deal? All right. Well, so to explain the case, this is a store where an 18-year-old walked in. He wasn't old enough to legally purchase a gun. He was with a 21-year-old friend. Caught on video is the friend basically being coached into filling out the form for the 18-year-old to buy the gun. The store clerk is helping them skirt the law. It's just incredibly obvious that the clerk understood exactly what was going on and that the 18-year-old got the gun because the store was enabling him to make a straw purchase, which is illegal. So it's one of those cases where if they hadn't won, that would just show that you could never, ever hold a gun retailer liable for harm. And I should also say that the 18-year-old then took the gun and shot a couple of cops with it who were seriously wounded. And so some of the money, which eventually presumably the store will have to turn over, although it's gone out of business, uh, will go to the police and that's the actual people who are shot and some of it will go to the city of Milwaukee. You know, what is heartening for the gun control advocates about this case is that you have an example where this kind of straw purchase, there is actual liability for. And that's possible because of a loophole in a law Congress passed a few years ago when there was a lot of litigation against gun manufacturers and gun distributors. 
the law that Congress passed did a lot to protect these gun manufacturers and essentially shut down this whole wave of litigation. There were like 30 cities in the state of New York, and they were all trying to argue that either the criminal use of guns or um, the ways in which manufacturers were making guns, like Saturday Night Specials, that were especially um, prone to be used in crime, that all of that should be something they could recover civil damages for. And essentially, most of those lawsuits went nowhere. A few of them settled, but it really just hasn't been the weapon for putting gun manufacturers and distributors out of business that the litigants hoped. So now we have a little bit of new life being breathed into this idea of going after at least like the worst actors. And that law I was talking about that Congress passed, which is called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, it did say that, okay, if you know you're making an illegal sale um, and someone then goes on to use the gun in a criminal way, that then you can get in trouble. And there are a couple of other loopholes like that in the law that would allow for more suits like this. The problem is, like, how often are clerks going to be so stupid as to get caught on video, you know, absolutely evading um, evading the rules like this. I, that seems sort of, you know, like pie in the sky that you're going to see a whole lot of examples like this. And I should also say that, you know, the gun lobby was quick to essentially denounce the store and say, like, they didn't play by the rules and those are legitimate rules. So there's a way in which this is like the one kind of suit that could actually succeed. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to have a big wave of um, other kinds of litigation and activism like this. Right, right. There doesn't seem to be any motion towards getting rid of the protect the law protecting gun sellers. Like they're not going to, Congress is not going to, Congress is not, is not heading towards making these lawsuits easier. There's no other litigation happening and no, no other legislation in the works that's going to, change America's gun laws. Nothing this this the fact that this happened two weeks after Roseburg has no real significance about the overall gun debate, right? I think that's right. I mean, look, I don't want to be like totally hopeless about it. You know, if if this store had gotten away with this kind of behavior, that would be I don't know, that would truly be grotesque and shocking. But in some sense, the the idea that you could have such an airtight case like this and everyone would be celebrating is a little dismaying because it just shows if you're a gun control person, how little there is to feel good about. John, during the first Democratic debate, Hillary Clinton made a made a big point of going after Bernie Sanders about guns. Several of the candidates proudly stated they'd made an enemy of the NRA. So some on the left have taken this as, oh, this is a sign the gun debate is changing in this country. <laughs> I am skeptical. What did you make of the fact that Democratic candidates are so happy to to align themselves against the NRA? Is that meaningful in any way for, for overall gun policy? No, not in any way that I can say. I mean, what I guess it does signify a little bit is the general leftward tilt of the Democratic Party. So if this were Bill Clinton in 1992 trying to win, and Clinton went on to win Arkansas, Tennessee, uh, what other southern, one other southern state, you couldn't, you would imagine him not being a gleeful denouncer of the NRA. So those states are gone to Democrats, and so it's not going to happen. The voters who care about the Second Amendment in swing states are not likely to be open to the Democratic candidates. So there's not the downside that there once would have been. And so it doesn't surprise me that they're right. leafly against it. I think what Bernie 
And it's, I felt this got a little bit lost. I mean, there was a lot of talk about what he'd done in the past. Um, but and it was kind of funny. For a moment, you had two things that you might not have expected in a Democratic debate. You had Bernie Sanders staking out the most rightward position of anyone on the stage about anything. And then you had also Bernie Sanders making the pragmatist's case that in a representative democracy, where people are supposed to represent the people in their districts or their states, that you can't get a majority of votes or in the Senate, 60 votes, because of the places in the country where people really do not like any kind of gun or don't like the gun control that's being proposed. And so he was, because usually he's the one who says, I, here's my solution, and everybody says, oh, that's pie in the sky, you've got to be realistic about the way things work. But he was basically saying, you know, I come from a state with a lot of hunters, and, and so I'm re- I was representing my constituents. I kind of think that the attacking of the NRA signifies... It's related to what we were talking about in the last topic. It has to do with the ideological sorting of the country. Mm-hmm. The Democrats have realized, like, these are not voters we're going to get. And there's no danger of them actually passing any laws or bills. There's no, no issue. See, it's not that the NRA has gotten weak the NRA, and that they're, they're attacking them. It's that the NRA is so strong because it, the NRA has effectively become an arm of the Republican Party. And it just is – it's a totally partisan issue and, and, and therefore – what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say like it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. Yeah, you mean it? It doesn't. It's. I'm trying to think what the equivalent issues are. It's just the issues where people tend to be moderate are issues where there is actually a compromise possible, where you tend you tend not to say extreme things if you think there's actually a compromise possible. This is one where nobody thinks anything's going to happen. No one thinks that there's any realistic chance of movement because they know that it's it's totally locked on the right, and so it doesn't. There's no there's no stakes on the issue anymore. It is it's no longer a po- live political issue. It's a completely dead political issue, and Democrats have lost those voters, and they might as well, so they might as well just make hay about it. It also sort of reminds me of climate change in the sense that one of the big problems with gun control is that we have so many guns in the country. It just feels like there's nothing to be done, and so that same um, sense of nihilism that I think stops people from feeling like they want to support candidates or or that they're that they feel like there could actually be something meaningful accomplished it, it's it pervades this issue too right okay we have a third sponsor this week it's bonobos every guy wants to look his best but few want to put in the effort to maintain a stylish wardrobe not fun maintaining a stylish wardrobe you have to iron i discovered that some of my shirts had been clawed by my cats and then eaten by moths that is not effort i need to put in to restock those nice goods. Bonobos takes the pain and hassle out of finding stylish clothes that fit if your your own stylish clothes have been clawed by your cats. They have clothes for any body type, any fit preference. You can easily browse online through top quality styles in your home, even with your cat sitting on your lap, which my cat does as I browse. There's free and easy shipping and returns. There's personal and fast service. And you can try on clothes at one of their guide shops before you buy. They have a full line of stylish men's clothing, all meticulously crafted for a better fit. Shirts for the office weekend. Shirts which your cat has clawed. Suits that fit like they've been tailored for you. Suits also clawed by the cat. Jackets and outerwear. Cat did not claw those. Ties, belts, and shoes. Not unclawed in my case. Golf clothes. Also unclawed. And pants (laughs) which have been clawed. So glad we're getting this inventory. You can look stylish, feel comfortable, and pick your perfect fit. For a limited time, all new customers can get 20% off their first order when they go to bonobos.com slash gabfest. That's B-O-N-O-B-O-S dot com slash gabfest. 
to discover the difference that an expertly crafted, better-fitting wardrobe can make. So take that, cats. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're in Iowa, John Dickerson, you're having a celebratory beer at an Iowa beer hall. What will you be chattering to your friends uh, about? I um, will be chattering about a new Bob Woodward book called The Last of the President's Men, which I'm reading. Bob's going to be on the uh, on Face the Nation on Sunday. It's about Alexander Butterfield. And, Alexander and boy, Butterfield, does he have a lot to say. What's that? And boy, does Alexander Butterfield have a lot to reveal. Does he ever? So Alexander Butterfield's famous moment in American history was that he disclosed the secret taping system, Nixon's secret taping system, which, of course, was the blockbuster revelation that uh, turned was one of the key turning points in the Watergate saga. So we already knew about Alexander Butterfield, but it turns out that Butterfield was also an incredible pack rat and had kept for his whole career at the White House all of his notes and memos. And before Nixon put the taping system in place, Butterfield had been taking notes on all of the oddities and weirdnesses of the Nixon White House. And so basically this is his story based on 46 hours of interviews with Woodward uh, about Nixon. And so not just Watergate, but the whole Nixon White House and the secret Vietnam policy. And it is an amazing portrait. It's, a, it's, it's just a really fun read, too, about Nixon, who was, I mean, we all have, you know, favorite Nixon stories, but this just illuminates the kind of paranoid, frightening, very weird fellow who was Richard Nixon. And so I've just, it's, I guess this is a recommendation. It's very fun to read. And the book also reproduces lots of the memos and things that uh, Butterfield wrote. And so if, you, if you're not a Watergate obsessive, I would, uh, I would recommend this book to you. Hmm. That's interesting. Bob Woodward has really been mining that. I mean, he deserves, he, he invented the mine. He dug the first hole to that mine. He's been mining that for a long time. Yeah, and that's what you could imagine thinking, this is just kind of rewarmed. No, it's like, it's all this new stuff. All right. Emily Labaz, what is your chatter? <laughs> I am addicted to this TV show, which surely already aired. Like, who knows, maybe years ago. Unreal. Lifetime series. Have you guys watched the show? I watched a couple episodes. It was a very I big, big favorite of uh, Julia Turner and the Culture Fest. Right. Yes. I think that's where I originally heard about it. But I'm totally addicted to it. I think it's like super fun. And I'm sure that's because so it's a fictional rendering of the making of a reality TV show. So you sort of get the, um, you know, the crappiness of reality TV, you get to sort of vicariously enjoy it while you're pretending to be watching a more satirical or critical take on it. It's like having your cake and eating it too in the most delicious TV way. I'm totally enjoying it. And the main character, who's this character named Rachel Goldberg, is ethnically Jewish in a way that I feel like there's so much of that on TV right now. I, you know, it's like part of Transparent, it's part of Broad City and to me, it feels like, yeah, like people are comfortable with regular old secular Jews on TV in a way that feels like Finally, refreshing. Finally, TV for Emily at last. <laughs> exactly. Thank TV, God. A TV Thank about God, people Emily. who look like they could be my friends. Oh, precisely. Just, wow. Um, speaking of baking, <laughs> do, baking and, and, and uh, cakes or whatever it was, the, do you guys watch The Great British Bakers? Do you know the show? Oh my no, God. tell us this about is, it. Is PB, that's what we should be it's watching? It's a PBS reality contest show of baking. 
It's 14 <laughs> British bakers. It is. So you just want to be a British baker. You're oh being an God. Anglophile like making fun of me. It's the most comfortable hour you will spend. It is utterly heartwarming, lovely. Like I could watch that show. It's, I could watch that show every single day. It but is, doesn't it just make you hungry? I hate no, food it's shows. Not like I never I mean, it watch does, them. It does make you hungry, but it's, it is a lovely, sweet, kind, decent warm-hearted show it is there's none of that kind of nasty edge that you find in almost every i don't think American i would topic. like it that oh. sounds way too wholesome for me in my tv so, taste it is so so lovely it's such a great way to spend time anyway my chatter is it's about i just heard about this great law today this great law i bet john dickerson knows about this law john do you know the guano islands act of 1856 no so this is an amazing law This is the one about scraping off the guano? Yeah. So guano was this very important natural resource in the 18th century before the invention of artificial fertilizers, before Fritz Haber. And guano is, of course, bird shit. And these huge deposits of it created where where lots of birds live. It was mined and traveled all around the world because people need to use it as as their fertilizer. It was the best fertilizer around. So in the mid-19th century, the U.S., had sort of lost, was losing the guano war to the British, which controlled various islands that were guano rich. And so the Congress passed something called the Guano Islands Act, which enabled citizens of the United States to take possession for the United States of any island containing guano deposits, to claim it for the United States, and it would become U.S. territory as long as there wasn't any anyone else demanding it. And they're still a huge number of islands that are U.S. possessions, which came in because of guano possessions. They're mostly like little atolls in the Pacific and, and uh, in some in the Atlantic. Baker Island, French Frigate Shoals, which is part of Hawaii, Howland Island, Jarvis Island, Johnston Atoll, Midway, the Battle of Midway. Midway was claimed by the, in the Guano Islands. It's just amazing that this, this law, which is still in the books, allowed Americans to go out and grab, grab land because it was covered in bird shit. Really hardens me. <laughs> yeah, I like it. There's one of these, Baja Nuevo Bank, which is just deserves its own whole book to be written about it. It's some kind of shoals off in the in the Caribbean. It's claimed there's five different countries claim this Honduras, Costa Rica, Colombia, the US and Jamaica all claim this territory. Anyway, you guys are not as attuned with guano as I am, apparently. Our intern is Tark Barrett. We are produced by Jason DeLeon. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please give us a five-star rating in iTunes by searching for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store and five-starring us. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week and come to our live show in New York in November. Hey, Panoply listener. We've got a live show announcement for you. If you live in D.C., Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting is having a live taping on October 20th at the Woolly Mammoth Theater. Join us for an evening of banter about the triumphs and fails, but mostly fails, of parenting. For more information, check out slate.com slash mom and dad live. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. 
We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.